Good morning, Minecrafters, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 7, Shane's Hiding Places. So, last week, we talked about getting unstuck and releasing the shame that, that binds you, with a lot of talk from, you know, about John Bradshaw's book, Healing the Shame That Binds You, and he's got a lot of good things to say. He just has done, he, he had done a lot of work, a lot of really good work in the area of shame and identifying different ways we feel shame and healing it. Just fabulous work. I would strongly encourage you all to, to, to read some of his stuff. And so last week, when we started talking about some of the places shame hides, first we'll revisit in case some of you didn't listen last week. Um, shame, remember, is that feeling of being flawed and defective. You know, that typically comes from early on in childhood when, you know, negative and shameful messages were not only said to us, but projected onto us so that we learn to carry these with us. And we can also, when this happens sort of consistently, you know, chronically, the child and now adult um, often has become shame based or meaning based in shame. And this to me, again, reminds me of a, of a colander, like where you dump pasta through or vegetables through or whatever. And, you know, we, we, it becomes our filter. So life is kind of flowing through our filter, our shame based filter. And we're kind of keeping behind like the pasta, the vegetables. Um, only that would be like a healthy comment, I guess, where the shame is not healthy. Uh, we're kind of keeping through our filter and sifting through. We're keeping things that keep us stuck and locked into shame, often filtering out, you know, the love and the kindness and the good stuff in life, because this is in our hard drive, much like a computer. And then it's also important to understand the confirmation bias that kind of becomes part of this, right? Because shame-based or not, most of us as human beings are walking around with at least a little bit of confirmation bias, which is unconscious. And what confirmation bias means is that we are seeking to find, you know, out to look for that which we already believe or hold, hold true as, and at the same time, also ignoring information that uh, is contrary to this. So that, you know, goes up against what we already believe. And that's true, you know, for most people in general. So for the shame-based person, they're walking around, you know, unaware that they're actively seeking out these, these messages that they hold true in their own hard drives to be true about themselves, about, the, you know, maybe the, the several to many ways that they're flawed and defective and less than, actively seeking it out, you know, in conversations and behavior and how we are treated by other people and not even aware that we're doing it. And obviously... You know, it's, it's like we're a shame magnet, I guess to say, and it just it reinforces and reinforces and reinforces and strengthens and strengthens, and things become uh, the internal dialogue becomes even more toxic and heavy. Heavy is a good word. Heavy for us. So last week we we did discuss some of these. If any of you missed that, you might want to go back and just kind of catch what's I guess sort of the first part of this. So you'd also be fine. Um, staying with this one if you didn't hear that. It's just that some of them, some of the hiding places were discussed last week, one of which uh, is one of mine that I, I didn't say my favorite because it's like a goofy thing to say, but one of them I guess that I see is very, very, very common and prevalent um, is elitism because it's so, so classic, just typical that when someone is feeling flawed and defective and not enough in so many ways that they end up as a grown-up 
kind of wearing this self-worth on the outside, you know, driving around in that Jaguar and, you know, belonging to whatever country club. And obviously, as said next week, it doesn't mean that every single person who golfs is a jerk, right? At the same time, you know, some of these country clubs, as you know, cost big six-figure digits to be members of. And to me, that says a whole lot more than I like to golf. You know, and, and another, there, there are a bunch of ways that shame hides. We're talking almost like tree forts. You know, I'm up in northern Vermont where there are deer camps, and it's almost that season now. So I think of these little kind of camouflaged wooden little forts up in trees, you know, hiding. And, and shame does that in all kinds of different ways. Again, a lot of which we mentioned uh, last week. Another big one is perfectionism. Perfectionism just comes, emanates from shame. It just... Shame is the source, that feeling of just being, you know, so defective that I must turn that around to avoid the pain, you know, that I've experienced before, avoid being vulnerable and seek to strive for that bar that I am just not going to reach. And even if you check that box once or twice here and there in the context of whatever whatever it is you're try, striving to be perfect in or about, uh, you got nowhere to go but down, which also reinforces the pain that you experienced before as a child. It's really perfectionism is a vicious, vicious cycle. A perfectionist, because they're feeling so devalued on the inside, they're, they're seeking to be valued for their actions and behavior. And just think of how exhausting that is. I must produce, I must produce, I must produce. You know, whatever that is, it might be in, in a scale of, you know, being that best son or that best daughter or, you know, at work or school with straight A's and da, 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 da. And it's just this endless cycle of, of trying to reach a, for a bar that keeps, you know, raising. And also, once you achieve, let's say, those straight A's, I'm a professor. I'm all about, you know, working hard in school. And so at the same time, and I say it to my students, you know, to try to shift your focus in, into the actual learning process, which is a tough sell, especially for first years. But the fact is that straight A's, after you achieve that, after that, you're you're just when you make that, you reach that, you're just checking the box again. You're just making it, barely making it sometimes. And there's nowhere to go but down. It's just not it's not a healthy mindset, no matter what context you put that in. Again, whether it's the perfect sibling, perfect partner, perfect employee, perfect whatever, that doesn't exist, and it just sets ourselves up to fail. You know, and this often kind of stems out of you know, from early on, when at least on our on our perception and how we're perceiving things with our parents is that we're only going to be loved and accepted for who we are based on what we do. And that kind of starts this also an endless cycle of comparison. And John Bradshaw says, perfectionism always creates a superhuman measure by which one is compared. And no matter how hard one tries or how well one does, one never measures up. See, and that just stays with us. We bring it right into adulthood. Never measuring up is translated into a comparison of good versus bad, better versus worse. Good and bad lead to moralizing and judgmentalism. Perfection leads to comparison making. And it's just, again, exhausting because it's just this, this bar that can't be reached and this kind of like a gerbil on a wheel that's just doesn't, it's just going to keep spinning, spinning, spinning without an end or some kind of feel good, you know, outcome to it. Cause that isn't what happens. At least not in the long term. He says a comparison making is one of the major ways that one continues to shame oneself internally. And John continues to say one can, one continues to do to oneself on the inside 
what was done on the outside. That is so spot on accurate. Judgment and comparison making lead to a destructive kind of competitive competitiveness. Competition aims at outdoing others rather than simply being the best one can be. Spot on accurate, John Bradshaw. And of course, another uh, common place for shame to hide, in addition to perfectionism and elitism and the others we discussed last time, is that power hungry person. You know, I, which not stereotypically, I guess I think in more in a business place, but obviously that can be a parent, that can be an older sibling, that can be you know whom a partner, definitely whomever. But uh, the need the need to have that that power is about protecting somebody from being vulnerable, right? And so remember that shame isn't anything to be taken lightly because it is the most excruciating and intense emotion a human being can feel, which is why we discussed in the last episode how, I'm thinking of an addictive family, but it doesn't have to be at all, uh, parents often project their shame onto their kids in dysfunctional families, and it's not conscious so it's not, you know, oh, I think I'll project my shame onto my kid today. They're walking around in so much pain themselves that they're projecting it on their kids. It's kind of like hot potato, like, you know, your turn, even though it's a child or one partner can pass it on to another partner or whatever. Nobody wants to harbor that that pain because it is just too much to to tolerate. And so, of course, power is just another way to control people, right? And, and people who are shame-based don't want to be out of control because they could wind up, you know, stirring up those those vulnerable feelings when they were a child. And uh, because vulnerability, as John says, also opens up someone for the potential to be shamed all over again. So they seek to have this power as sort of like a shield or a protective device. John says that the striving for power flows from the need for control. Achieving power is a direct attempt to compensate for the sense of being defective. When one has power over others, one becomes less vulnerable to being shamed. Power-seeking often becomes a total dedication and life task. In its most neurotic form, it is an out-and-out addiction. Individuals spend all their energies planning, scheming, gaming, and jockeying for position in order to climb the ladder of success. Power is inherent in certain roles or positions. Such roles are often sought as jobs to cover up shame. And this has me thinking about adult children of alcoholics, which we're, I'm going to do a whole thing on that, which will probably be a two-parter because it's kind of big. Uh, but shame is obviously inherent to addicted families. I mean, it's in the hard drive of the family system. And so there are certain jobs or careers that kind of attract shame-based people. Um, and we're going to get to that later. And, and you know, I'm, I'm right, right near right now. He's talking about the doctors, a doctor saying, you know, if I can just gut it out being a doctor, no one will ever look down on me again. No one will ever look down on me again. And um, again, we'll get to the adult children of alcoholics later. So I'm thinking of um, the oldest child dynamic, responsible child. Often they're very attracted to certain to certain jobs and careers because of the need to, not just for control, but to sort of look to, to for the external honor, um, for the internal honor that, that, you know, is so diminished or often lacking in addicted families. And so even just as a teaser, I guess, is one of them, one of the ways this can manifest. 
is in, you know, the medical field, just one of them. We're not saying all doctors and nurses, you know, blah, 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 you know, but the, and, and the messages for many though, the shame based doctor that, you know, grew up with, you know, lots of shameful messages and, um, you know, all that negativity and, and, you know, sort of having this internal dialogue that the message becomes, you know, if you're not going to want me, you're sure as hell going to need me. And then, of course, rage, which John said is probably the most naturally occurring cover-up for shame. And John says when rage is used as a defense, it can become a characterological style. Rage protects in two ways, either by keeping others away or by transferring shame to others. People who have held their rage in often become bitter and sarcastic. They're not pleasant to be around. I'll say, and I have such a thing with sarcasm because I just, as I say to my kids, jokes are funny, right? So, you know, typically somebody's trying to, you know, sneak in some snarky, snide things we said last week as well under the guise of a joke, which is even more confusing to a child. If that's being said to a child, they're trying to figure out, okay, this is supposed to be funny. Or it's a joke about how I didn't do well in school and how you're insinuating I'm stupid. And, and then you're laughing because you're trying to, it's just so confusing and so harmful and destructive. I don't like sarcasm. And then John says, internalized rage foments a deep bitterness within the self. Bitterness destroys the self with its myopic, myopic vision and its quest for negativity. Rage also intensifies into hatred. If, a, if the person with internalized rage also acquires power, then it can result in violence, revenge, vindictiveness, and even criminality. You know, and with elitism, you know, it kind of, kind of implies arrogance, right? But... Um, you know, we're talking about just arrogance even on its own is also another hiding place for shame and also pride. And, you know, we talked about the people are perpetually late. I think last, I think we did, uh, you know, that, you know, obviously somebody can blow a tire, but somebody's perpetually late. In fact, Oprah even did a show on this years ago, um, which I think I also mentioned, I'm starting to, they're starting to run together. So my apologies for that. Somebody's perpetually late is making a statement. You know, I value myself and my time more than that of others. I mean, it's just very clearly stated in that behavior. John says that arrogance or pride is defined as offensively exaggerating one's own importance. The proud, arrogant person alters her mood by means of her exaggeration. The victims of arrogance are those who are unequal in power, knowledge, or experience. The victim feels inadequate around the know-it-all, be-all, proudly arrogant person. He believes he is inadequate because his lack of knowledge, experience, or power. Anyone who is on the arrogant person's same level simply sees her as arrogant. And I love this kind of how he caps it off here because I, I definitely have met people that just go down the arrogance spiral. It's almost like they just get so fogged over. They're not even aware of how other people perceive that they're walking around so incredibly self, self-important which can really seem obnoxious, you know, from the outside looking in. And it's like, they're like in the eye of the storm. They don't, they're not even getting how they sound sometimes, you know, because it just, they're kind of overtaken by it. And so John says, arrogance is a way for a person to cover up shame. After years of arrogance, the arrogant person is so out of touch. She truly doesn't know who she is. And then the kicker is, you know, this is one of the greatest tragedies of shame cover-ups or hiding places is not only does the person hide from others, she also hides from herself. Also, when someone, you know, becomes based in shame and carrying around a lot of shame, they can become very critical of other people. You know, obviously we all have moments of that. You know, we have moments of that and then most often we feel terrible when we recognize it. The person who's carrying around a lot of shame um, is getting some kind of payoff in that. You know, obviously it's not healthy, 
but it's more like, or and, it's more like you would say, oh, so-and-so is so critical. Like it becomes part of who they are. It's not really a once or they're having a bad day. You know, it's kind of part of it becomes like a character trait. You know, they also become judgers and blamers and, you know, moralizers because this is a way to kind of deflect from their own thought pattern, their own shame-based feelings, and of course their own behavior. And uh, John, John says judgmentalism and moralizing are offshoots of perfectionism. Moralizing and judgment, judgmentalism are ways to win a victory over the spiritual competition. Condemning others as bad or sinful is a way of feeling righteous. Such a feeling is a powerful mood alteration and become highly addictive. You know, this thing makes me think of certain, um, you know, religious people, and I'm not saying everybody. We have some very, very good friends who are priests and some of the kindest, most loving people you'd ever want to meet. They're just fa- fabulous people. Saying in general, you know, I'm not saying specifically Christianity either. And sometimes it attracts some people who are shame-based, those, you know, fire and brimstone, you know, just, you know, judging and everybody's burning and going straight to hell. That's That's often coming out of a a place of, of shame and that, that righteousness, that self-righteousness is a way to hide and duck away from one's innermost feelings of feeling flawed and defective themselves. And another one, of course, is, is contempt or disgust. And I'll tell you, if any of you are aware of family systems therapy and the, the four horsemen they're called, um, when, uh, for well, marriage counseling is now called couples counseling. Back when I did it, it was called marriage marriage counseling often. And one of the four horsemen is is contempt. And these are the four things that can just destroy a long-term romantic relationship. And one of these is contempt. It's a big one. And um, one of the most telling signs of contempt is an eye roll. I say not every time somebody rolls their eyes, however often when somebody rolls their eyes, even if it's seemingly not such a big deal, that person who's doing the eye rolling is still on some level coming from a place of being higher than the person they're rolling their eyes about. And, you know, this is a base, a big looking down our nose at somebody and often people aren't aware of it. Uh, it is important to know though, that this contempt thing is super toxic in, well, in any relationship, but certainly in a long-term relationship and marriage and things, it's uh, something that's important to be, become aware of and to redirect, talk about, communicate, and get rid of it because it's, you know, it's like dumping poison on a relationship. It's really looking, not only looking down one's nose at the other person, but at the extreme level, it's, it's, it's a disgust thing, like that they're disgusting. You know, it's just, it's, it's very, very, very toxic. What John says about contempt, he says, in contempt, one is intensely conscious of another person who is experienced as disgusting. Like they're super conscious of what they're doing. Maybe not aware of the eye rolling and what they're kind of saying, but they're aware on some level of what they're doing. In contempt, the self of the other is completely rejected. Parents, teachers, and moralizing preachers often act shameless in behaving contemptuously toward children, students, and disciples. When a major caregiver or teacher contempts another person under her tutelage, that person experiences himself as offensive. And feels rejected in no uncertain terms. Feels offensive. It's almost like, um, you know, you feel like somebody's kind of sniffing. You're like, ooh, do I have body odor? You lift under your arms. But it's that times like a thousand. Like your very existence is offensive to people. Just a horrible way to feel. And then uh, he says, the child learns to condemn 
self and interjecting the caregiver's voice and in identifying, identifying with the condemning caregiver. The child lacks any means of protection. Identification allows the child to feel unprotected. The child then obviously learns to condemn, to condemn others later on as he was condemned himself. And, you know, this has me just thinking, like, I just want to hit the pause button for a second because think about all these different ways we're talking about to hurt other people, you know, to really, really hurt other people because it's coming from a place of being hurt ourselves. And so, as you know, as they say, hurt people often hurt other people. Damaged people often try to damage other people, right? It's, it's, it's definitely a thing. And we think, when we think of all these different things, we're co- they're coming out of shame. Think of the source. Think of how intensely toxic and destructive this emotion can be. And we're not even done yet. Then here's one that can go hand in hand with elitism, but it can also be anyone, or, and it can also be anyone, is patronizing. And I'm sure many of you, if not all of you out there, have heard other people be patronizing. And if you've caught it, you might even say, hey, don't patronize me. You know, it's kind of this fake read for the check, you know, the Somebody's trying to give you a backhanded compliment if you've heard that that phrase when really what they're doing is coming from this this elevated place, you know, like an elitist, somebody who's arrogant, you know, because they're throwing you a cookie. You know, you know, good job. You really did great with that one. They really don't mean it. And um, it's a backhanded compliment. They're kind of, like I said, throwing you, throwing you a cookie. And you can just feel it when somebody talks that way. You can just feel feel them talking down to you. I know. I've experienced it. And it, it's not pleasant. It, it feels like the, I don't know, got you in a corner or something. I don't like it. I really like what John says about this. He says, being patronizing leaves the other person feeling shame. The interpersonal transfer of shame through patronization is very subtle. On the surface, you seem to be helping the other person through support and encouragement. Yet in reality, the helping doesn't really help. Patronizing is a cover-up for shame and usually hides contempt and passive-aggressive anger. You know, we should really talk about the passive-aggressive thing. It's another thing I don't like. I, I think because I'm really... I'm authentic and, and I, you know, very integrity based. And I, I just don't like when, when people are coming from a place that's, that's not integral. And when I also think of passive aggressive, right? When we're angry, we're angry. Angry does, anger does have a healthy role, right? But when we don't, um, you know, express it, validate it, it leaks out sideways. So if some of you aren't aware of this or because the term is kind of thrown around a lot, Passive aggressive. An example of being passive aggressive would be would be like you really you really pissed off at someone you work work with who you who you carpool with, right? And you just you want to say it, you want to say it, you really want to say it, but it's awkward. There's politics involved. You're not sure if you should because they might say something to so and so, and then you're you know you're kind of stuck with getting a promotion. There's all kinds of politics, and then you're leaving and carpooling. You're t- you're the one driving, and you you mistakenly well so so it seems forget them. And drive all the way home. That would be a very good example of passive aggressive anger. And then there's a whole lot of ways that kind of go the other direction that are, um, you know, rolling right into codependency, which is going to be at least two episodes. That's a big topic, but we'll just get it started. And we'll just get it started off here, though. Somebody can go the other direction. You know, we have contempt and all these ways to be sort of, um, you know, offensive to people and you know, ov- more overtly hurting people. And another place shame can go is, you know, sort of seeking endless reassurance in a relationship. It can be romantic relationship. It can be with, uh, you know, a, a parent, an adult, when you're an adult child, a parent, it can be with whomever, work, work colleagues, bosses, 
you know, people pleasing and being nice. And people get so confused with, well, you know, I'm a good person. Okay. You're a good person. There's a difference between being a good person, which is important and doing things for directly for the, you know, the benefits of, a, of approval, that feeling that makes us feel good very briefly of approval and, you know, being almost sickeningly nice in a way that's not genuine. Genuine nice is great. People pleasing and being nice coming from a place of shame. And it's also transparent. People can pick it up. And that person very quickly becomes a doormat, you know, kind of has welcome tattooed on their forehead. And lastly for today, one, one, the last one here is envy. So it's amazing that the source of envy is shame. And, you know, it's this. John says here, this is easier. The most childish form of envy is greed. When I envy someone, I begrudge her something or some quality she possesses, wisdom, courage, charisma, etc. The envier magically believes that if he had that quality, he would be okay. I even want to expand on that and say not only that quality, but that the circumstances of that person professionally. You know, if I had that opportunity, if I would have known that person, if I would have, if the timing of that, and I'd been the one who happened to be there, you know, 15 minutes early and met so-and-so who owned and ran, whatever, whatever, whatever. That I think also counts for sure. And he says, envy in the form of greed is exploited by modern advertising, which offers the post-hypnotic suggestion that we are what we possess. That is a whole nother thing. If only, yeah, if I, we are what we possess. If I had this, had that. So the elitist is, is definitely thinking this. The elitist is wearing his or her or their, you know, uh, self-esteem, self-worth and honor on the outside. And that also comes from envy and ultimately toxic shame. You know, so maybe some of you are aware, I'm not sure, but the big ACOA or adult child of alcoholics movement happened, at least in the States, in the 80s. And certainly John Bradshaw is part of that, Claudia Black. Uh, she's a big part of that. And Janet, oh, she's a dash dash. I always forget her last name. She, they've done a lot with this whole inner child thing. And I love the, the idea of it. And I, as far as I know, that's when it was introduced. And the, the sort of thinking around it makes so much sense because I think many of us think that as we grow chronologically older, that our insides, you know, kind of follow suit. And that's just not true. And especially when it comes to such an intense emotion as shame, um, if we grow up in an addicted family or not and just had a lot of shame, you know, however we received it doesn't really make a difference. We, in a sense, get, get stuck emotionally and, and not in every way, but in some ways. And we can, we continue to, to again, look, you know, seek out this, these, you know, these messages. We, we're actually, unco- we're not conscious of it. We're seeking out these shameful messages that we've, you know, we're kind of comfortable with and used to familiar with, and our behavior also seeks out, you know, um, people treating us this way. So it, it's just like this ongoing cycle until we become aware of it. Only when we become aware of something can we then choose to change it because we obviously cannot do what we do not know. You know, it's truthfully, this is just my own personal opinion, but if we could alleviate the shame, let's say the majority of shame across the entire world, we would have very, very few, if any, problems. And there's certainly wouldn't be a need for, you know, psychologists or prisons or anything. Shame is at the root of all of it, in my opinion. 
And of course, as a very good friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Dave Lander says, once we become aware, we become responsible. And you know, whether that's an awareness of some big, you know, global injustice or something like that, then we have a responsibility. And also we have a responsibility to ourselves. Once we become, once we become aware of our own, you know, toxic shame we're carrying around and maybe even being shame-based, realizing that not only are we hurting ourselves, but we're hurting other people, probably people we love and care about, that it's really important to ease the pain, right? It's like feel the dreams. I love that movie. Ease the pain. Ease our pain and ease the pain of others. Because, you know, what we do to ourselves, we do to other people. And what we do to other people, we do to ourselves. And so in the next episode, I didn't realize I put this off for a third one. I did not realize it was going to, you know, take us a while to get through this conversation. You know, though it's so important not to rush things. It really is important to be able to digest you know, what we're taking in, especially with such an important topic as shame and the toxicity that goes along with shame. And I'm also kind of aware that it seems like 30-ish minutes is is a good line because people tend to, you know, lose focus, including myself. So uh, for the next one, we're going to we're gonna jump right in and get into kind of the discovery phase and then how to get started and committed to, have the courage to, um, to kind of get going with, with releasing the shame and, and healing the shame, um, one step at a time, because there are some, there's some very good strategies that we can do to kind of undo this wiring. The brain is very, very, uh, plastic as we say and malleable. The brain wants to heal. And of course, it's also, it also likes patterns. So if we're a negative Nelly or we're used to our shame-based thinking and, and all that, it's it's going to take some commitment and some repetition, just like with a toddler, to turn this around. Because, you know, years of, of habit and familiarity with these patterns is obviously going to take some undoing. But here's the thing. Once you just get just a taste of what it's like to let go of some of the heaviness of shame, because shame is a big, it's a burden. It's just a burden on the spirit. Once you get that first kind of breath of fresh air, taste of say the good life, um, it becomes, yeah, sorry, truck went by. It then becomes easier and easier and easier to keep the ball rolling with it because it just feels so good. It's this, it's not like an you know, instant pleasure point thing, like having a great burger and a pile of fries, which I'm a fan. I'm not putting that down, but when we feed our spirits, oh my gosh, it's just such a, it's such a content feeling, such a whole complete feeling that you, you walk around with and it. It's such, uh, longer lasting. I guess that's the best way. It just feels so good. And once you get a taste of that, you will be off and running. And on that note, Minecrafters, I'd like to thank each and every one of you for listening across the United States and world with a special shout out to Chile. Muchas gracias por escuchar Chile. And on the last note here, uh, this is Kimberly Quinn signing off from Northern Vermont. Have a mindful day.